This is an EWTN Newslink. I'm Teresa Tomio from Catholic Connection. The Pope says persecution of the early Christian feeds a fire of evangelization rather than extinguishing its flames. The Holy Father teaching on St. Luke's Acts of the Apostles during today's general audience in St. Peter's Square. An independent investigator finding the Archdiocese of New York is effectively responding to the clergy abuse crisis. Former Judge Barbara Jones and her staff studying files of every priest and deacon in the Archdiocese, finding none of those in active ministry has a credible allegation of misconduct. A second sexual harassment lawsuit filed against former West Virginia Bishop Michael Bransfeld, a seminarian for the Diocese of Wheeling, Charleston, accusing him of inappropriate behavior with him beginning in 2017. For more news of the Catholic Perspective, visit EWTNNews.com. I'm Teresa Tomio, and Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders starts now. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. On the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN, the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you yourself are not currently a Catholic, uh, but you've got some questions about the Catholic faith, we'd love to hear those questions at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, you'll want to dial the U.S. country code and then 205 271 2985. I'll give you that one more time. 205-271-2985 for our friends outside of North America. Uh, you can also text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for our response and then text us your first name and your brief question. Message and data rates may apply. Again, the phone number 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for us. Charles Beery is our producer. Ryan Penny is our phone screener. Delighted to have Jeff Burson back in the house after a uh, very nice uh, family visit to Seattle. So welcome back, Jeff. He'll uh, be uh, passing on any questions that you might want to pose via YouTube or Facebook. We're streaming there live right now. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Great. How are you, my friend? I'm hanging in there. Thank you. You look a little sleepy. A little sleepy. A little sleepy. Well, hopefully we'll get some jazzed-up callers who can uh, you know, get you awakened. That's, I love doing it. That often happens. That often happens. So we're going to lead off here with an email from Mike. And we're in this email, we're using a little inside baseball language. If you don't know what SSPX is, that is the Society for uh, St. Pius X. And we'll talk more about that as the uh, question unfolds. Here's the question from Mike. I enjoy the Tridentine Mass and have no connection to the SSPX. But I was recently made aware that there is an SSPX church close to me with a school. I believe the Second Vatican Council is a legitimate ecumenical council, but I would like my child to learn Latin and the beauty of the Tridentine Mass. So, would it be okay to send my child to this SSPX school while still being a Catholic who fully supports the Pope? Also, if I enjoy the Latin Mass, support the Pope, and Vatican II as a legitimate ecumenical council, could I attend their SSPX Mass and fulfill my Sunday obligation? Thanks, Mike. 
Okay, thanks, Mike. I appreciate the question. So, you you have an obligation to raise your child as a Catholic, and your obligation extends to making the most prudent choice about your child's education for future life. Mm-hmm. And uh, all parents are operating in, under conditions of uncertainty and imperfection when they make educational decisions, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, and we weigh a lot of factors. We weigh a lot of factors. A lot of Catholic parents have no choice but to send their children to uh, government schools, which are certainly going to be much farther removed from the heart of the Catholic faith than this institution. So this is a prudential choice. Now, the the criteria that you set forth, learning Latin mm-hmm. and appreciating the Tridentine Mass, might very well be accomplished in some other institution. That may, this may not be, and and you and you ought to have other criteria. There's a wonderful document from 1977 published by the Congregation for Catholic Education, this is the Dicastery of the Vatican, mm-hmm. called the Catholic School. It kind of gives you what the criterion of a good Catholic school are. Let me select one that I consider to be primary. A good Catholic school should teach a child how to. Uh, how to negotiate, if you will, between their faith and the culture. How to how to how to live their faith in their particular historical cultural context. How to understand and respond to those cultural issues in light of their Catholic faith. My personal opinion. Personal opinion. You're free to disagree with me. I don't think conveying. A, a strict ideology mm-hmm. and and thinking of my conformity to Catholic faith in in terms of you know have I signed on to the correct ideological program I don't know if that's the most helpful way of meeting that objective if you read what uh, soon to be Saint John Henry Cardinal Newman says about Catholic education He'll tell you, or any education, he says the principal goal of education is to form the intellect. Right? It's right. a for intellectual formation, the ability to have wisdom, to, to take account of the big picture, to think through all the rational implications, analyze and speak to issues. Ideology doesn't facilitate that because it, it inculcates narrowness of thought rather mm. than broadness of mind. So, one of the questions I would want to investigate was how ideological is the instruction in this institution? And am I really going to meet the objectives of a Catholic education, helping my child to negotiate between the faith and culture, you know, rather than, say, perhaps only thinking about my relationship to culture as one of opposition, mm-hmm. which sometimes is necessary, other times not. Right? Mm-hmm. And in particular, how about negotiating my life as a Catholic Am I is my is my child learning to set himself in opposition to uh, the um, well the universal Catholic faith as represented by the Pope and the bishops in communion with him and and, and my local ordinary and or or, or am I going to learn to you know that Catholic identity requires me to to be part of a sect or an ideological party set off within the church mm-hmm. that's a dangerous place to be that's something you might want to investigate. Um, can you attend mass 
at an SSPX chapel and fulfill your obligation? Yes, that doesn't make it the most prudent choice. Because generally, I'm not sure where you live, I don't know what diocese you're in. Generally speaking, if you're interested in the, the extraordinary form of the Mass, there's a way to satisfy that interest without being in a chapel that belongs to an order that has no official ministry within the Catholic Church. Good point. Well, Mike, there you go. Thank you so much for your uh, very thoughtful letter, and we hope that's helpful for you. In a moment, we'll be talking with Harry in Pittsburgh, listening on the Station of the Cross. A couple lines open for you right now if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Or you can text the letters EWTN to 55000. Back in a flash with lots more Call to Communion here on EWTN. Stay with us. Unplanned, the true story of Abby Johnson. I would be the youngest director in Planned Parenthood history. She believed in a woman's right to choose. I've had an abortion myself, so I don't have any problem with another woman making the same decision. Until the day she saw something that changed everything. Tiny, perfect little baby. And then it was just gone. Now she's pulling back the curtain on the abortion industry. Unplanned. Available at EWTNRC.com and the EWTN app. Father John Ricardo. Again, the only reason that you and I are here is because he wanted us to be here. If he didn't want us to be here, he wouldn't be here. How do you know God loves you? You're breathing right now. I don't feel like God loves me. I know God loves you. You're here. You wouldn't be here if he didn't care. Even if you've ignored him your whole life, even if you're the most heinous of sinners, he loves you. He may not be pleased with you. Because he loves you, he won't let you stay that way. Because he loves me, he won't let me stay the way I am. But the fact that I'm still here tells me that he loves me. Whether or not I feel it or not, which is very comforting because I don't feel it a lot. So I know that from my experience of existing right now. But even after the fall, even after Adam and Eve turn their backs on God, rebel against God, God shows himself, he reveals himself. We're talking about revelation, which gives us access to the Father. He reveals himself by repeatedly breaking into people's lives. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Hey, tomorrow morning on Catholic Connection, be sure to join Teresa Tamio and her guests Greg and Julie Alexander talking about their monthly marriage discussion. And uh, Greg and Julie are fantastic, and you will definitely get a lot out of the program tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Harry. Harry's in Pittsburgh, listening on the Station of the Cross, and is a first-time caller. Hey, Harry, what's on your mind today? Yeah, you know, I've heard people call Jesus Yeshua, Y-E-S-H-U-A, and they tell me that's like Hebrew or Aramaic, and... Or we should we be? Can we say Yeshua instead of Jesus, or what? Is yeah, correct? thanks. I, I appreciate the question. There's no necessity to certainly. You're, you're not going to be as widely understood if you do, because that's not how Christ is commonly referred to. It's not as the name we commonly use in the English language, nor is that pronunciation used in other modern languages, right. and it's not used in the New Testament. So the the name Jesus is actually Greek. It's the Greek form of this Hebrew name. And so the New Testament authors, when they spoke about the person of Jesus, they used a Greek translation of his name. 
So if they didn't feel the necessity of using the Hebrew, I don't know why we would. The sacred author, inspired by the Spirit of God, didn't think we had to use the Hebrew or the Aramaic. I don't know why we would. Harry, thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's called a communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Zach sent us an email that says, My atheist brother has been assigned Jonathan Edwards' book, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Of course he has. In his of course he has. In, <laughs> in his American history Of course class. he has. So he has asked me to help him understand it. I know very little about Protestantism, but would like to help him. I know that Edwards' view of salvation was wrong. Can you help me convince my brother? You, you want me to convince an atheist that Edwards was wrong about salvation? <laughs> Easily done. <laughs> Easily done. Rock on, David. So, you know, uh, this is unfortunate. Look, I don't agree with Jonathan Edwards because he was a Puritan and a Calvinist, and I'm a Catholic, and he would not have thought much of, you know, my beliefs. That being said, this is probably the worst possible thing from Edwards you can assign to a history class. Not because the sermon is is unrepresentative or a bad one, but it's just it. There's so much. Edwards is actually a very brilliant guy. I mean, un, unbelievably brilliant. And in the world of Puritanism, and that was the tradition that he was a part of, Edwards is to the Puritan tradition kind of like what Saint Thomas Aquinas is to the Catholic tradition. It's his foremost systematic thinker. Mm. And quite honestly, I think if I were talking to an atheist and I wanted to get them going on Jonathan Edwards, maybe as a as a foray into a discussion about the Christian faith, I would assign Edwards' book On True Virtue, On True Virtue, in, in which Edwards considers virtue as a species of beauty, an, an aesthetic analysis of the virtuous life, and he does so along very Neoplatonic and Augustinian lines. And so it's a very rational discussion. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but in, uh, the, w- the way he goes about doing his philosophical theology is quite profound. Okay. There are other books by Edwards that are also very interesting. Edwards' uh, fr- uh, treatise on the freedom of the will um, is a actually pretty sophisticated uh, work of metaphysics. And again, I don't necessarily hold to the conclusions, but just so many good places to get into a discussion of Edwards. The one, this is the one sermon that it has a it has a place in the history of American revivalism, um, but I honestly think most people assign the text because they want you to hate Puritans. Uh. There's plenty of good reasons to hate Puritans, right? <laughs> I mean, but it's just not it's just not a there's just better ways to get into this history, especially the intellectual sure. history, right? Sure. Um, in a nutshell. Um, Edwards is just teaching the traditional Christian doctrine of the wrath of God, right? That God hates sinners, and that and that uh, uh, we're answerable to God for our sins, and we're liable to eternal punishment. I mean, that's the central theme, mm-hmm. and he's calling on people to repent. Um, but he uses some pretty vivid metaphors. He compares the human person to a to a spider on a single thread held over a roaring flame, you know, by God. And it's just like the, the, the thinnest thinnest thread between you and eternal perdition. Wow. Right? Um, so uh, c- convince him that Edwards is wrong. Well, you know, I really seriously doubt that the class is going to go deeply into the question of, of Puritan soteriology, the Puritan oh. doctrine of salvation. Um, one of the interesting things about Puritanism, it was wrong, I believe, uh, but but... There was a strong tendency in Puritanism towards the pursuit of holiness of life. Now, there, 
the reason they did that was different from the way Catholics do it. Mm-hmm. But there was a strong tendency towards pu- uh, holiness of life, hence the title Puritanism. They're trying to purify themselves and mm-hmm. their culture and so forth. And so there are some points of commonality between Puritans and the Catholics. There was a Puritan named Thomas Hooker who represented uh, something called one wing of Puritanism, which was the preparationist uh, wing. And the preparationists held that you had to actually purify yourself morally in order to receive the grace of God. And you're thinking, that doesn't sound very Protestant. And you're like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Wow. And, uh, and, of course, the Council of Trent taught that we can prepare ourselves for the grace of justification. So there's a there's a kind of preparationism that's different, but kind of preparation with the, within within Catholic soteriology mm-hmm. as well. So there are interesting points of commonality. Um, good historical work on Puritanism. Perry Miller's book, The New England Mind, is a classic work of American intellectual history. Um, and then uh, the book, uh, Orthodoxies in Math- Massachusetts. And the author will come to me in a minute. Anyway, this is an interesting intellectual history that examines how much diversity there was in American Puritanism from the get-go. That's why the title is Orthodoxies in the plural and not Orthodoxy. Ah, Very good. Well, uh, Zach, thank you so much for your email. We do appreciate that. By the way, you can send us an email anytime at ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We usually try to get to uh, two or three every day and then uh, do a a whole bunch of emails uh, when we do our mailbag Janice Knight. Janice Knight. Oh, good job. That's the author, Orthodoxies in Massachusetts. I'm impressed. Yeah. Let's go back to the phones here at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Michael's listening in Granite City, Illinois, on Covenant Radio and is a first-time caller. Hello, Michael. What's on your mind today? Hi. I'd like to ask Dr. Andrews. Uh, I, th- I feel like I'm, after listening to you for a while now, uh, first of all, I'm a pre- Protestant, re- Reformed Calvinist. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to study Catholicism, and I've been listening to you. I've read Scott Hahn. Uh, I feel like I'm on the same path as both of you guys trying to to move in that direction. And I was kind of sold on apostolic tradition and oral, uh, as, uh, oral and written until last night. Uh, I came across this article, and I was hoping you could... Give me shed some light on it. It's by Thomas Cartwright. It's called The Apostolic Tradition, Oral or Written, An Examination of Second Thessalonians 2.15. The Confutation of the Remus, which I don't know who that, who that is. And okay. it talks about the fathers. The fathers yeah. of the L- let me ask you a question. Okay. What is the central thesis of Cartwright's article? Okay, it's basically saying that 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 oral and written is the same. That that when they didn't have a chance to write it down, they the apostles were saying what they would later write down. And what's his what's his evidence for that? Well, he gives uh, very many uh, of the fathers. Uh, so no evidence from the apostles. Up. No evidence concerning that from the from so he's he's citing tradition, but no evidence from the he's apostles themselves. Like Augustine, Augustine, and uh, a lot of the other ones. Are, so is he alleging that Augustine does not believe in the authority of sacred tradition? He does, but he's saying that it was basically equal to they wouldn't have said. In other words, they wouldn't have said anything different than what was written down later. 
Okay, all right. Well, I, I mean, I have a lot of things to say about that, so give me a moment. I'm going to build a case here. Let, let's begin not with Augustine, but with Christ. I think that's a rational place to begin as Christians. Let's begin with the teaching of our Lord. And the, the fundamental question we have to ask is, did Jesus Christ himself make any explicit provision for handing on the Christian faith? What say you? Uh, I'm not sure. That's a good question. Well, it's really fundamental, right? Because if Christ yes. didn't tell us how it's to be done, then there's no authoritative answer to this question. So, yes. so, and yes, then I can I can roll dice if I want to. <laughs> if Jesus didn't give me any instructions, up to me. But I would contend that he did. That he did give explicit instructions about the transmission of the Christian faith. So as you know, Christ was incarnate. He lived an exemplary life. He taught. He also demonstrated his teaching by his own form of life as exemplary. And he also instituted rituals, this, what we now call the sacraments, like the, the, the Lord's Supper or the Mass, uh, sacrament of confession, absolution, baptism. All these things are mentioned in the, in the explicit teaching of Jesus. And he took this, his, his oral teaching, his lived example, the ritual forms that he instituted, and he transmitted them to the eleven, to the eleven, with a command that they perpetuate them. He said, go into all nations, make disciples, and teach them everything I have commanded you. And I will be with you until the end of the age, and whoever hears you hears me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and what you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So when we look to the teaching of Jesus, specifically about the transmission of Christian revelation, the provision that he makes is the authority of authorized individuals. Authorized individuals with a promise of divine assistance to the end of the age. Jesus makes no mention of a, of a written text as the go-to final authoritative source or voice to settle matters of Christian doctrine or practice. No mention of that idea whatsoever at all. And the apostles themselves refer to this tradition. In 1 Corinthians 11, for example, verse 23, St. Paul says, The tradition that I received from the Lord I also passed on to you. And then he actually gives us the elements of the sacred liturgy, which he says is the principal means of proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. This is the, this is the mode of the transmission of divine revelation, this liturgical tradition that he received from Jesus. Um, now, the apostles also wrote stuff down. We don't have everything they wrote down. Paul, we know, wrote letters to the church in Laodicea. We don't have them. All right? And so they wrote some stuff down that we don't have. We don't have any, we have no idea how much they wrote. And the things they did write, they wrote primarily as occasional documents. So, you know, when Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, he said, this is to you guys in Corinth. And he names individuals, mm -hmm. and he identifies problems that were particular to the church in Corinth, different from, say, the church of Thessalonica. Mm -hmm. Nothing in the letter itself suggests that Paul intended it to be 
a kind of uh, a, a kind of encyclical for the universal church that would stand as a comprehensive answer to anything we would want to know about faith or life. And that's true of each of the texts of the New Testament individually. Nothing about Ephesians, nothing about Acts, nothing about the Gospel of John suggests that the, 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 the very form, the literary genre of the letter, doesn't suggest that it's a kind of textbook or manual on the Christian life, but rather occasional documents written for specific purposes. And when you put all 27 of them together, the collection, assuming we have the right list, no, as Catholics we know that we do, but nothing in the list itself tells us that we've got... If you have all 27 books and you don't have Catholic tradition, you don't know that maybe I should have 28. Maybe I'm missing one. Maybe I only need 25. Maybe I got I got two too many. No way to answer that question apart from sacred tradition. None of the texts themselves suggest about themselves or about the collection that there's some sort of comprehensive manual on the Christian faith. So do the apostles make provisions for handing on the faith in that kind of comprehensive manner. You betcha! Mm -hmm. Look what we read in Acts 14. That the apostles appoint, the apostles appoint, who appoints? The apostles appoint presbyters, priests, and all of the churches that they found. And when you read the pastoral epistles, we know what they instruct them to do. To hand on the tradition that was conveyed to them, and then to appoint successors also to do the same. And in the second century fathers, the teaching is explicit that the mode of transmission intended by Christ is the apostle and the and their successors, the, the bishops, the episcopacy. That's explicit teaching of Ignatius of Antioch, of Clement of Rome, of Irenaeus, of Lyon, uh, even of Tertullian, who ended up leaving the church. And I'll say the same thing, mm-hmm. unambiguously, long before the formation of the New Testament canon. That's the understanding about how you hand on the faith. When you get to the Augustans and to the Basils of the 4th century, they teach explicitly that there are oral traditions that are authoritative that are not found in sacred scripture. This is the explicit teaching of St. Augustine. It's the explicit teaching of St. Basil. Look at his treatise on the Holy Spirit, for example. Mm -hmm. Example, Basil says, well, look at uh, the Epiclesis and the liturgy. This part of the tradition. It's authoritative. You have to do it. We don't know it from sacred scripture. We know it from sacred tradition. In fact, the, the, the form of the sacraments in, is, a, is another good example of stuff that we cannot derive from the Bible, but is authoritatively handed on by sacred tradition. I mean, we could name 10,000 other examples. Sure. Hey, Michael, thank you so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. In a moment, we'll be talking with Teresa in Lincoln, Nebraska. We have a line open for you right now, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Hi, I'm Christina, and I'd like to invite you to the traditional Latin Mass at St. Pius X. The traditional Latin Mass is a beautiful combination of contemplative prayer and children learning how to participate. We have missiles for you to borrow that contain the prayers of the Mass in Latin and English or Spanish. After Mass, join us under the shade of the trees to socialize and let the children play. I hope to see you this Sunday at 1.30 at St. Pius X Traditional Latin Mass off Harry Worsbach near 410. Thank you. May God bless you. Next time you replace your car, think about donating the old one to Guadalupe Radio. 
your gift may qualify as a tax deduction. And it helps support Catholic Radio right there where you live. Get more information about our vehicle donation program by calling one 888 636-6422 or go to our website grnonline.com and click on the vehicle donation link. This is Father Jonathan Felix, Vocation Director of the Archdiocese of San Antonio. A very common phrase I hear in my ministry is, Father, we need more holy priests. Father, we need more holy sisters. These are very true statements, but often when I ask those same people, what about your child? I get the response, well, not my child. Where do new priests and religious come from if not from holy, faithful families? Our domestic churches form the next generation of our universal church's ministers. I would like to ask all parents to hear this appeal from Pope Francis. Do not be afraid of the holy vocation that has come down from heaven to rest upon your children. If you have faith in God and in his church, is it not a comfort and joy to see your own son at the altar, clothed with the priestly vestments, offering the sacrifice of the Mass and praying for his mother and father? Is it not a great consolation that makes a mother's heart beat with love for her daughter, to see her consecrated to Christ, serving Him and loving Him with her whole being? If you have questions or just want to talk about this, connect with us at archsa.org slash vocations. This is Father Jonathan. May God bless you and your family. So what do we talk about during the break here? Cat litter. We just got two young kittens and we're trying to deal with, you know, cat litter and what brand to buy and you know and your wife is an expert at this stuff well you know like I, i've told my my family absolutely no cats absolutely no <laughs> and then you know i have a kid that comes home with a couple of well actually three garbage cats pulled them out of a garbage can little yeah. tiny kittens and yeah. like you know so we have to keep them for three weeks until the vet can take them off our hands and uh-huh. of course three weeks into the thing you know the family is hooked and that's I'm, right and i'm on the hook you're on the hook when we sent one of the one of the garbage cats away to find a nice home elsewhere but i'm stuck with two cats but i have to say like as cats go if i had to pick my own two cats these are some pretty awesome cats they're garbage cats and they look like russian blues so the Russian blue is like a fifteen hundred dollar cat. Yeah. And they're expensive cats. And I, I, we pulled ours out of a garbage can. <laughs> so, two cats in the yard. Life used to be so hard. There you go. So let's go back to the phones here on Call to Communion eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Here is Teresa now in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey Teresa, what's on your mind today? Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I have a question about four grandchildren, two of our grands and two of our great-grandchildren under the age of two, all of them, who have not been baptized. I feel that I have an obligation to speak to the parents, my son and my grandson, but I would like to know what words to use in love and encouragement. Okay, thank you. The parents of these children... I assume the parents have no religious practice? Um, my son is sort of practicing at the time he's come back, but it's not real strong yet. Oh, okay. So if we, he's, he, the, the, the father of the children has recently returned to a sort of weak-kneed practice of the Catholic faith. Is that, is that what I understand? Yes. Okay. But- well, that's a lot. That's a that's a huge foundation to build on. I, I thought you were going to tell us that he was completely away from the church. So you're, man, you're in a lot better shape than a lot of grandmoms. Let me tell you. Uh, so if he has come back to the church, then then you've got you've got some commonality there. Sure. 
And you can say, you could just ask, hey, when are you thinking about getting Junior baptized? And, uh, you know, I'd be willing to, I'd be willing to take him. You know, if you don't want to go, I'll take him. I'll take, as long as somebody's willing to step up and take the child to Mass, the priest will baptize. Now, if a a parent says, absolutely not, no, not gonna, not gonna take the kid, not gonna let grandmom take the kid, kid can't come, they're not going to baptize the child if there's no expectation of formation in the faith. But at least if, if somebody will take on that responsibility, or some somebodies, they'll baptize. So, hey, you know, you're going to get the kid baptized, and I'll, I'll be happy to help out, you know, and see what happens. Yeah, don't forget to pray, Teresa. Appreciate your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. A couple lines open at the moment, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Quick text here from uh, Peggy who says, why are the archangels sometimes referred to as saints? That would be because they're saints. Because the archangels and all the angels, all the holy angels, are confirmed in grace, even as even as humans who are conformed to Christ in baptism and die in God's friendship and go to heaven, they're confirmed in grace as well. Uh, they have sanctifying grace. They enjoy the, visit, the vision of God. So they're holy. All right? yes. The holy angels don't sin. They're, they're impeccable. They can't right. sin. Mm-hmm. And they love God, and they love neighbor, and they love us, and they do this through the grace of God, just like humans who are who are sanctified do so. And so it's very appropriate to refer to them as holy angels, and saint just means holy. All right. Peggy, thank you so much for your text. Here now is Dan in Kirksville, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Hello, Dan. What's on your mind today? Uh, hello. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I listen to your program as much as I can. I'm interested in the, I'm a Catholic and I'm interested in the question of sola scriptura. Oh, good. Uh, I think I'm a sola scriptura person because as far as I know, uh, the only knowledge, first-hand knowledge of Jesus we have is from the Bible. And because when people, uh, apologists say that uh, it's not just the Bible, it's sacred tradition, and we know that it's sacred tradition, they go to the Bible to prove that. They say that Jesus said that I'm passing this on to you. And the reason we we know that because of the Bible. And how do you uh, how would you explain that? Why do you think it's not just sacred? Yeah, thanks. Sacred. I appreciate the question. There is a category mistake, if I might be so bold, in your assertion. And the category mistake is this: you are confusing the question of biblical authority. All Catholics believe in biblical authority, with the question of biblical sufficiency. They're two different things. The Bible, let, let's just pretend for the sake of argument for a moment that we do not know whether or not the Bible is an inspired document. Maybe God gave it to us, maybe he didn't. Now, this is just an intellectual exercise, because, of course, I do confess that the Bible is God's word. But just for the sake of argument, let's imagine we didn't know, and we approach the Bible simply as an historical text. As an historical text, it would give us historical knowledge of the teaching of Jesus, But the fact that we can access the historical Christ through the documents does not demonstrate that God intends those documents, those very same documents, to be the only final authority for the church. Maybe, maybe God just intends them to be our point of access to the teaching of the historical Jesus. But those are two different questions. Those are two different questions, right? Um, So, so... I can access the teaching of Jesus about the Catholic Church through the text. That doesn't establish that God intends that very same text to be the only source of information about Christ. 
But the point of the matter is, you can't even get to the authority of the Bible without Catholic tradition. Because, go back to my hypothesis. Let's say I approach the Bible as simply an historical document. But I have no idea whether or not to regard its words as authoritative. Or whether I should regard the collection as complete. Or uneven in some way. Hmm. Well, maybe Romans is authoritative and John isn't. Maybe 1 Thessalonians belongs here and 2 Thessalonians doesn't. Uh, you know, maybe First Clement ought to be in there, and it's not. All right? And so I don't know how to weigh the, the these texts that are presented to me from the ancient world as anything other than a historical document. I don't know if they're authoritative or not authoritative, if they should form my view of Jesus or not form my view of Jesus. I got no idea. All right? But as a Catholic, I approach them with the belief that they are inspired by God and authoritative, not because they say so. That would be circular but because sacred tradition says so, because they're handed down to me from sacred tradition. The reason I know I have the right list of 27 books is that sacred tradition teaches me this. Tradition came before the Bible. You wouldn't have a list of books if there hadn't been a tradition of regarding these texts as inspired. Think of it this way. Let us say that God inspired, uh, a divinely inspired and infallible, inerrant cookbook. And it, it could teach you how to make an absolutely heavenly meringue. The infallible meringue. The, mm. the impeccable pecan pie. What would you be able to learn from that cookbook? Well, you'd be able to learn how to cook meringues and pecan pies. <laughs> but you wouldn't necessarily be able to answer a question of church government. Because the book doesn't address it. What would you conclude about the book? What is God's will for the world through this book? Well, maybe we'd be great cook, cooks, <laughs> right? But it wouldn't necessarily tell us how to run a church right. or whether or not you can use in vitro fertilization or is it okay to abort your child or is Christ really present in the Blessed Sacrament? Mm -hmm. The book doesn't say that wasn't it, that's wasn't it purpose. And we're in an analogous situation. Catholic Church teaches that God inspired these books and means them to be authoritative just not comprehensively sufficient. What are they authoritative for? Well, they, they give us information about the historical Christ, about the lives of the apostles and the prophets. They give us moral exhortation. They give us charismatic proclamation. Uh, they're useful, as St. Paul says, for teaching and rebuke and training in righteousness. That's a lot of stuff, but it isn't everything. We still need to know a lot more things. In the previous call, I gave the example. One thing we need to know is... How do you celebrate the liturgy? Christ, we know from Scripture Christ instituted a liturgy, but didn't give us any explicit instructions in the book about how to do it. Mm -hmm. The only way we know is from sacred tradition. And guess what came first, the liturgy or the Bible? Liturgy came first, Bible came second. And finally, I would say it's, it's not true. It's not true that the Scripture is our only source of information about the teaching of the historical Christ. We do have authoritative traditions about the teaching of the historical Christ. One of them is that he authorized apostles to to write texts. We don't know that from the Bible. We know that from sacred tradition. That's true. Okay. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your call. We do appreciate it. It is called to communion here on EWTN. We don't normally uh, put weather forecasts in this program, but I will tell you that the weather is changing, and I understand that uh, it won't be quite so stinking hot as it has been here in the South uh, starting this weekend. So things are going to start cooling down a little bit. I can't wait. 
I can't wait for things to calm down and cool down a little bit. And you know what? That would be a great time to see you uh, here at the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament. Uh, retreats are happening. Uh, you can uh, join us for a little spiritual renewal. Uh, please consider the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament. Visit the final resting place of our dear Mother Angelica, the foundress of EWTN. And while you're in the area, tour our campus here at EWTN. It's only an hour away from the Shrine in Hansville. And it's all right there on the interstate. Very easy to get on and get off to uh, come visit us. Love to see you here. Start your Catholic pilgrimage today with EWTN. Call 205 271 2966. That's 205 271 2966. You could also go to a uh, wonderful website that we've set up just for folks like you, ewtn.com slash pilgrimage. That's ewtn.com slash pilgrimage. Phone lines are open for you right now, 833 288 EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833 288 3986. Here's Veronica now in Pensacola, Florida, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Hey, Veronica, what's on your mind today? Hi, thank you. I was wondering, um, do guardian angels have names, and uh, could we name our guardian angel? The guardian angels have names. God has not revealed them to us. There are some Catholics who, whose devotion to guardian angels involves assigning them names, this is something that Mother Angelica did. She gave a name to her own guardian angel. You can make a case either way. Mm-hmm. You can say, if God wanted me to know my guardian angel's name, he would have told me. My guardian angel knows who he is. You know, it's not like if I if I have my kids in the house and I holler out, hey, kid, <laughs> I'd better specify or I'm not going to get the one I want. Right. Even if I do specify, I may not get the one I want. <laughs> this is not the case with my guardian angel. He knows who he is. If I ask for his help, he's going to come to my help, provided I ask, you know, something in accord with the will of God. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessary, um, uh, but uh, there are some who do, including our own beloved Mother Angelica. Yes, indeed. So we do thank you for your call, Veronica. It is called to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number eight three three two eight eight EWTN. Here's an interesting email from uh, Christina, who says, "I am a Catholic." married to a Protestant. We've had many conversations about my faith and his faith, but how would I answer his question about baptism being versus being saved when I'm not sure what being saved even means? I've tried to explain and show him where to find our understanding of baptism in Scripture. He believes that accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior is enough to go to heaven. You don't necessarily have to get baptized. Well, how can I explain this to him so that he can understand? Thank you. So you said you don't know what he means by being saved. I know exactly what he means by being saved. I'm afraid that what he believes is not biblical and it's not sensible, but I can tell you what it is that a lot of Protestants and Baptists think. They believe that when a person invites Jesus into their hearts, prays the sinner's prayer, says, Christ, I'm a sinner, please save me, can't save myself, I trust in you, something works to that effect, that, that God will forgive all of your sins, past, present, and future, and consider you to have met the demands of the law because of the obedience of Christ. And so that no further o- obedience or moral change uh, is necessary, or compliance, is necessary on the believer's part in order to get into heaven. It might be advisable, but it's not necessary. And so even someone who remains kind of a rank sinner 
uh, at enmity with God and his neighbor in his will, murdering and committing adultery, could potentially go to heaven, provided he's prayed that sinner's prayer and invited Jesus into his heart. That's a very dangerous teaching. It's very dangerous teaching, uh, because it runs flat contrary to the teaching of our Lord and the apostles and 2,000 years of Christian history. And it tends to make people presumptuous about the state of their moral life. Uh, what is what does Christ teach us? What do the apostles teach us? What does sacred tradition teach us? What does reason teach us about this question? So Jesus tells us that many will come to him on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, uh, and he'll say, away from me, I never knew you, because you didn't feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give drink to the thirsty, shelter uh, those who are homeless, or visit those who are sick and imprisoned. And the book of Revelation, chapter 20, tells us that Christ will judge all of us according to our works, not according to whether or not we prayed to receive him in 1972 at a Billy Graham crusade, (laughs) but uh, according to our works. And those who've done righteous deeds will receive eternal dwellings, and those who do bad deeds will go to hell. And uh, Romans chapter 2 says the same thing. There'll be glory, honor, and immortality to those who obey God, and there will be wrath and punishment for those who disobey him. So, uh, how do you know you're saved? Well, Christ says, Matthew 24, that those who persevere unto the end will be saved. You want to be saved? By persevere to the end, cooperating with the grace of God. The blessedness that we seek in Christ is the blessedness that changes us in our interior life, makes us poor in spirit, meek, uh, mourning, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, peacemakers, and all the rest of it, according to the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. How do we get that grace in our lives? to change our hearts and cause us to love God and love neighbor so that we really can be accounted righteous by Christ on the last day. We receive that through faith and the sacraments. And the sacraments are really kind of a deepening, an extension, and an application of the dynamism of faith. St. Thomas Aquinas calls them the sacraments of faith. Sacraments are like faith in action. They're like faith symbolized. They're faith uh, externalized and ritualized and applied to us. Uh, Why? Why would God do that? Why wouldn't he just give us the bare act of faith in an assertion without actually demonstrating them to us in a sacrament? Well, sacraments have a number of benefits in our lives. One of them is they're tangible. They're tangible. People do well with tangibles. When my children were in school a long time ago, learning the alphabet and their numbers, uh, we homeschooled a couple of them, and we bought these homeschool kits. They always came with manipulables. Yes, or you got things you can touch and handle with your hands. Mm-hmm. But it's two plus two. Let's take two blocks over here, two blocks over there. You can see it demonstrated in front of you. Manipulables. You know about learning styles? God is attuned to learning styles. So he gives us manipulables in the Christian life. They're called sacraments, right? And uh, as such, as tangible things, they're constant witnesses and reminders to what uh, what otherwise would have to just be stated as an abstraction. Mm-hmm. On top of that, the sacraments are, are come with a promise attached that if you if you engage in the ritual according to the proper form, God actually promises, guarantees to us that He will convey the grace symbolized therein. And so it they offer us a profound assurance, a profound assurance in addition to a teaching moment. St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that we die with Christ in baptism and rise again with him to new life. He says again in Galatians chapter Oh my God, my mind's going blank. Is it 517? 517? He says, whoever has been, or is it 317? Whoever has been baptized is clothed with Christ. Whoever is baptized is clothed with Christ in the book of Galatians. St. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 that baptism now saves us. All right? So, so do we need faith? Absolutely. 
But faith and the sacraments are not two different things. They're one and the same thing in different modes. There's faith in my heart. Then there's, then there's faith applied externally to me by the ministration of the church using the ritual instituted by Christ with the promise of divine assistance. The effect of the sacraments is to work in me that charity that is the fulfillment of the law, whereby I will be saved. Christina, thank you so much for your question. It is called Communion here on EWTN. We're going to Brian now in Des Moines listening on Iowa Catholic Radio. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today? Hey, gentlemen, thank you. Uh, first-time caller, a long-time listener. Hey, I run, a, I run a men's group at our church, and we sometimes get into some really interesting discussions spiritually, and pretty good group of Catholic men. The question came up here recently, and I, I thought it was kind of interesting, and I thought maybe you have some insight on it. We're talking about when you go to church on, on Sundays, you hear the, the Gospels, you might read about the consequence of hell, but rarely had any of us in our recent years it's not mentioned in the pulpit ever, everywhere, and I'm not, we're not advocating for fire and brimstone, but don't you think once in a while they should make mention, here's what happens, here's the consequence? Is there some reason why the priests never address this or bring it up? Because anecdotally, we feel like we've never heard it that much. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate the question. So, uh, of course, hell is a sort of tried-and-true part of Catholic tradition. It's taught in sacred scripture and, and confirmed by councils and doctors of the church. And if you want to, you know, get some hellfire and brimstone out of the Catholic tradition, I recommend St. Alphonsus Liguri. Oh, yes. Who will uh, literally scare the hell out of you, as you Mother bet. Angelica used to say. <laughs> so uh, he's one that you can go to for mm-hmm. uh, good fire and brimstone preaching. Uh, believe it or not, St. John Vianney. Um, had had a few words or two to say about doctrine yep. of hell uh, in his sermons. Um, uh, of course, Our Lady uh, seems like every time she shows up, she's on about hell, right? <laughs> Especially Our Lady of Fatima had a lot to say about hell, uh, visions of hell, uh, uh, the 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 deeds that lead to hell, the consequences of hell. Um, in particular, had a lot to say about sins of impurity leading uh, many people to hell. Um, and, you know, that, that that apparition wasn't too long ago. And, of course, uh, there's a great devotion to Our Lady of Fatima in the Church. And people are constantly, in my experience, Catholics are constantly recalling that particular aspect of the apparition probably more than anybody else, more than anything else. And uh, why is that? Well, you know, I don't know the mind of God. I don't know Our Lady's mind. But it seems to me if there is kind of a deficit, perhaps in catechetical ministry or proclamation, maybe Our Lady's going to show up. And uh, clear the matter up once and for all. So she shows up and says, watch out, there's a hell, don't go there, right? Um, in terms of why would a priest make the selections from sacred tradition that he makes in preparing his homilies, that's obviously going to be a prudential decision on the priest's part. If you read the general instruction on the Mass, the priest has an enormous amount of leeway in terms of what he preaches on. He can preach, you know, we've got Old Testament, Psalm, Epistle, Gospel, then all the colics and the prefaces and the liturgical prayers and so forth, all the variable and ordinary parts. Of the he can take any part of that and preach mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he could, he can get a lot of business done without ever specifically going to hell. Why would he do that? Well, in his prudential judgment, he's decided that in his community, that's the best pastoral approach. And since he's the priest in that parish and I'm not, I'm not going to second go. I'm not going to second guess that decision. There you go. Hey Brian, hope that's helpful for you. Thank you. Let's go to Greg now in Seattle, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Hey Greg, what's on your mind today? Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, you know, I'm kind of wrestling with the the doctrine of the unhypostasis. Um, I'm sort of assuming David knows what that is. 
the 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 well I I are you is this is this relative to the hypostatic union? Yeah, it's kind of the foundation of it actually. Okay, why don't you give me your definition? Yeah, my understanding of the on hypostasis is that that you know we hear the hypostatic union two natures in one person. But as it is, the one person is the divine person, then there's a divine nature, and then there's a human nature, but there's no human person, and so that means without without a person on hypothesis. Right. Well, that wouldn't be the Catholic position, think, right? The Catholic position is that the union is in the person and of the natures. And that's, the, that's the Orthodox Catholic view. There, there's, a, there's one person, Jesus Christ the God-man, and two natures. He assumes a, a complete human nature, including a rational soul, and there's the complete divine nature, uh, the second person of the Trinity assuming the human nature, and the, and the nature is, is specifically in the person. One person, two natures. Yeah, but, and, but wasn't that person, uh, the, the person existed prior to the Incarnation? Okay, so, so the historical flesh of the man, Jesus comes into being in the womb of the Blessed Virgin in in the quasi-normal way, minus a human father. And so, uh, you know, from, from the point of view of eternity, God, the Father, I mean, the Blessed Trinity, of course, eternally knows about the incarnation of the Son, but the incarnation of the Son takes place in time. And the there is a person, the second person of the Trinity is, is personal, there is a personal relation within the Godhead, but the, it is the person of the Son who proceeds from the Father. That person assumes the human nature, and it, it's not like there is a there's a second person of the Trinity who's toting around a humanity, you know, like a sack. <laughs> no, he genu- genuinely assumes the nature, and there is a union in the person of two natures. Okay. So, so the 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 person of Jesus Christ, the God Man really does walk and talk and speak and have agency as a human person who's also divine. Divine person who's also human. There it is. Uh, Greg, did that help you out? No, no. It leaves me probably more confused than ever. Well, Okay, I, so I, let me... Th- we're, we're getting heavy into metaphysics here. And we're also out of time. Right. Thomas Joseph White, Dominican has recently written a magisterial treatment of the metaphysics and ontology of the Incarnation called The Incarnate Lord, and it's an exposition of the Thomistic doctrine of the hypostatic union. If you really want to dig down into the into the deep details, Thomas Joseph White, Dominican priest, uh, The Incarnate Lord on the, on the Thomistic metaphysics of the Incarnation. That's where you want to go for more information. Greg, thank you so much. Uh, sorry we just ran out of time. Jesus in St. Cloud, Florida, and Barbara in Vancouver, Washington. Couldn't get to you either, uh, but please call us back tomorrow or, or on the day of your choice. We'll uh, put you at the head of the line, I promise. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. See you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. On behalf of Charles, Ryan, and Jeff, I'm Tom Price. Looking forward to seeing you then. Have a great day, and God bless. Hey, y'all, this is Father Mitch Pack. Open Line Wednesday is next on EWTN Radio. If you're currently an EWTN media missionary or just interested in becoming one, we've got some great news. EWTN Media Missionaries has a new and improved website. 
EWTNmissionary.com, designed with you in mind. Our new site is loaded with great features and it's easy to navigate. There are so many different ways that you can help EWTN. Join us in sharing the eternal word with the world. Visit EWTNmissionary.com today. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Catholic Daughters of the Americas Court 2241 presents TV Showtime at their annual luncheon and style show to be held October 20th at the Omni Hotel at the Colonnade. There will be vendor boutiques and a silent auction and a runway show followed by the luncheon. Proceeds support Catholic Daughters charitable projects. For more information, call 210-422-5770. That's 210-422-5770. You can now get the Guadalupe Radio Network app for your iPhone or Android. With it, you can listen to your local GRN station or any station in the GRN network from wherever you are. You can hear on-demand podcasts of your favorite GRN programs. You can connect with the people at your GRN station, and you can easily support the mission of Catholic Radio when you're ready to. Visit grnonline.com. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. Have you ever heard someone say, since every religion claims to be true, well, then none of them are true? Even though this is not a very intelligent comment, it does not prevent people from saying it. G.K. Chesterton says probably one of the creeds is right and the others are wrong. Logically, most of the views must be wrong. But there's nothing logical to the idea that all must be wrong. Think about betting on a horse. Many people bet on the wrong horse, but some bet on the right horse. And sometimes even the favorite has been known to come in first. But that's the point. Something comes in first. The fact that there are many beliefs does not destroy the fact that there is one well-founded belief. So don't say that the variety of beliefs prevents you from accepting any beliefs. It's not logical, and it's not a very good way to bet either. Want more than a minute? Chesterton.org. This is Life News Radio. I'm Jim Anderson. The billion-dollar abortion industry has sought and found a judge appointed by a pro-abortion president willing to block Georgia's law banning abortions after a child's heartbeat can be detected. In blocking the Georgia law, the federal district judge and appointee of the Obama administration dutifully cited the most spurious and most criticized logic behind Roe v. Wade. That is the idea that a right to privacy is somehow hidden in the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. One advocate of Roe once admitted that this particular kind of privacy was like a penumbra or partial shadow in the Constitution. This is Life News Radio. Persecution around the world has manifested itself through the centuries, but it is worse today than ever before. Aid to the Church in Need and its donors have been there to help since 1947, never abandoning the Church or her most vulnerable children. Will you stand up for your faith and accompany our brothers and sisters on their spiritual journey? Visit churchinneed.org. churchinneed.org. A new abortion law would take North Ireland from offering the best to offering the worst care in Europe for women and children. So say hundreds of medical professionals who also politely say they will refuse demands to provide abortions starting October 22nd. 
And a ruling by U.S. District Judge Howard Sachs looks very much like legislation from the bench. The judge chose which parts of a Missouri law would stand by allowing an abortion ban to block sex selection and race abortions while striking down a ban on abortions targeting Down syndrome. For pro-life headlines delivered to your email address daily, sign up at lifenews.com. This has been Life News Radio. Thanks for listening to KJMA 89.7 Floresville, San Antonio. On the Guadalupe Radio Network in South Texas. Catholic Radio for your soul. Catholic Radio for your soul. Heard also streaming on grnonline.com and on your smartphone.